Hello, this is Eric Bryant, pastor at Gateway Church in South Austin. If you want more resources, including the notes from this message, go to ericbryant.org. Or to find out more about our community, go to gatewaychurch.com south. You go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, my name is John Ng, and I'm just uh, here wanting to share a short little story at the very beginning. And if you are new, we just wanted to welcome you. Glad that you were able to join us. Uh, today, I've got my life group up here with me. Not everybody is here. Some of us attend different services. Some of us are out of town. But I just wanted to introduce you to a few of my friends here. So this is Janelle. Janelle hails from El Paso, Texas, and she's been in Austin for the past 20 years. So she loves the city, but when visiting her hometown, she also looks forward to seeing her extended family. Because they have this tradition where they gather, and it's usually no less than 25 people. They're loud, they're obnoxious, it's a lot of fun. Um, And she also works as a speech-language pathologist. And speaking of language, one time at our live group, Janelle was just sharing about some of these struggles in her own life, and she kind of just cursed accidentally in the moment, and she felt horrible about it. But then we really just thanked her because it helped us to be more raw, authentic, and honest with one another. And that's because life group can be a little bit messy, right? We all come with these ideas sometimes that we can't be real with one another, but it's also very beautiful because we learn how to do that together. This is my wife, Gloria. Gloria is from Long Island, New York, and she's also my beautiful wife. And uh, we have a little one. Her name is Adeline. She's just about 22 months old. And, you know, when we just started this life group, she was a little bit hesitant because, you know, being a pastor's wife, it comes with a lot of different expectations sometimes. Some of them are from outside, just experiences that she's had. Some of them are internal. But as she stepped in more and more into our life group, she's realized that this community has been so life-giving for her. And that's because we come with all of our own kind of thoughts. Sometimes we carry some baggage with us. Uh, Life groups can be messy, but they they can also be really beautiful. This is my friend Stephen. Stephen's also from El Paso. He's been here for about 18 years. He's married to Janelle. Good friend of mine, but, um, you know, he really was one of these guys that I I met very early on, and then he just didn't show up at all. (laughs) And I thought he was really friendly. And then I thought, maybe he just puts up a friendly front, but doesn't really like us a lot. (laughs) Well, a little bit more about Steven. He is um, somebody who loves his hometown food from, from, I I guess, Mexico, right? El Paso, a lot of Mexican food that way. He's loved um, just learning how to play drums and now is actually one of our volunteers from time to time. So he's been doing that for the past 18 years. And life groups can be a little bit messy because we can misread each other, right? But they can also be beautiful because I've come to really appreciate him as a friend. And these are my friends Drew and Katie Hollis. They are new parents again. Yeah, let's celebrate that together. So they've got little Sawyer with them and... I didn't ask them to actually share anything, but they are just incredible friends of ours. They've been such a life to us within our life group, and we're just so thankful that you guys are a part of what we're doing here. So I've invited Stephen to share a little bit more about his experience 
through our life group. So I'm just gonna hand him a mic and he's gonna give us a little bit more details awesome. around his experience. Thank you, John, appreciate it. So uh, like John said, my name is Steven. And uh, before he threw me under the bus, my story will explain <laughs> why I wasn't at these meetings. Uh, so the, the past 10 months since the group started, I was in a role in my career that required a lot of travel. And after five years of this, my wife and I had really determined that we were ready for a change in my career. Uh, with our daughter approaching three years old, the travel got to be really, really tough. And so coincidentally, or so at least I thought, right now having a better understanding of how God works through our lives, I was approached about a role that would have me based solely in Austin and eliminate the travel. So my wife and I were really excited about it. And throughout the whole interview process and stressful selection process, the group was extremely supportive. I could feel their thoughts and their prayers throughout the whole ordeal. And this is, like John said, without me even being at the meetings because I would be out of town. So my wife would essentially be there representing our family by herself. Uh, so the, the group really became a core support structure for us throughout that, uh, along with, with our family and our friends. And so when I was you know, when I accepted the position, I was really excited to tell the group and I could genuinely feel their happiness for, for not just me, but for my family and for the life change uh, that we we're about to experience, which has been amazing. So over the past 10 months as a life group, 10 months is not a long amount of time, but we've gone through so much. We've experienced life, the birth of two new babies in our group, here being one of them, uh, death with some of the death of some of our family members, uh, sickness, career changes, and other life-changing events. And the support that the group has shown us has been amazing and a true reflection of God's love for us. And it has helped my wife and I grow closer to God. Uh, we've developed these amazing relationships, and we look forward to continuing down that path, immersing ourselves more with the group, uh, learning more about Scripture, and just kind of getting outside of our comfort zone with the support of our group. Uh, so it's something that has been truly amazing and something that we really cherish. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, thank you, John. So we, again, just wanted you to hear a snapshot of what Life Group could be as we continue to tackle the You Belong Here series. And in a moment, we're going to have Eric come up. But thank you again so much for allowing us to share some of our stories. And let's welcome Eric to the stage. We're going to come. All right. Hey, let's thank them again for sharing their story. Community can be messy, but it can also be beautiful. And last week, we talked about ideal community, what an ideal community looks like and feels like. It's loving and accepting. It's vulnerable and transparent. It's growing and serving together. And we do that by creating the soil of grace, giving each other grace and extending kindness, even as that's what we want. And we don't try to fix each other, but we try to help each other grow to become the person that God created them to be. It's a caring community made up of a diversity of people. And God's end game is people from every nation and tribe, language, and ethnic group united in his love as his new family. 
And if that's God's goal, then how do we see God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray? Because there's ideal community and then there's the real. Forming real community in the midst of the struggles of life. See, real community is never easy. And most of us are not equipped for how to push through the messiness of real community to move towards the ideal. A few years ago, there was a, a Happy Planet Index. Did any of you hear of this? Out of all of the countries, the Happy Index kind of looks at life satisfaction, life expectancy, and the resources required. Out of 172 countries, where do you think the United States landed? 150, 148, good, good, good guess. So number one, the place that we all wanna move is called Vanuatu. Now Vanuatu has about 300,000 people and one of their spokesmen said this, the people are generally happy here because they are very satisfied with very little. This is not a consumer-driven society. Life is here. Life here is about community and family and goodwill to other people. Now, the problem with all of us just moving there is we will bring our problems with us. See, they have a different perspective on life than we do. Now, what's fascinating about Vanuatu, this island nation, is it's also extremely diverse with 150 different languages being spoken. It's also 83% would describe themselves as Christian, but it's not the American European colonial version. 90% of the church leadership are indigenous, native-born leaders following in the path of Jesus' relational way. See, there's a, a myth that we grow up with in America that ultimately what we need is independence. And in that kind of freedom, we will get all that we want, but actually we were created for community. And so we undermine the very thing we're searching for when we don't take seriously our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And that's supposed to be what the church is about. But there's a form of Christian religiosity. It's churchianity, which sees the church as an organization run by professional clergy here to feed and meet the spiritual needs of all the people who come, to marry and to bury. It's like an H-E-B supernatural supermarket. And we see the church as a service. And so we come on Sundays and we worship and we learn and we grade the service at lunch. I know what you do, because <laughs> I do the same, right? And we give and we're supposed to try to do our best throughout the week. But if we don't feel like we're getting enough, then we bounce to the next place. We skip H-E-B and go right over to Randall's. It's, it's an American version of me, church. It comes from our Western, affluent, me-centered, non-committal, feel-good culture. And it's not only crippling the church, it's actually doing damage to each of us. You see, we misunderstand how Jesus designed the church. See, the church is not a service on Sunday. The church is not a building. The church is made up of those of us who follow Jesus. The church is a community. Now, there's a, a verse in the scripture when Jesus was first starting this this movement. In Matthew 4, 19, some of you might have this memorized. He said, come, follow me, and I will give you great insights. Do you remember that verse? Maybe it's a little different than that. Let me try again. Come, follow me, and I'll give you great songs to sing written by people in Australia. 
Okay, that's not it either. I, I, I know I have it memorized. Let me, let me try again. Come follow me and I will protect you from the world. That's not what he said. There's a few of us who might remember. Matthew 4, 19, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now it's analogy because he was talking to fishermen. What he was saying in essence is, come and follow me and you can be a part of changing the lives of other people. Come follow me, I have a purpose for your life. See, Jesus does not invite us to follow him for what we can get, but for what we can give. See, ultimately what Jesus tells us is that we, when we lose our life serving, that's actually how we find our life. When we're more committed to others than we are ourselves, we actually will enjoy life more. See, our hearts are bent towards selfishness. And serving others is the antidote to being self-focused. And it's the path towards healthy relationship. The pastor of the church where I served for about 13 years before we were here in Austin is called Mosaic. His name is Erwin McManus. He was a a friend, uh, still is, and a mentor. And he said this in, in one of the books he wrote. He says, the church is not here to meet our needs. We are the church and we're here to meet the needs of the world. It's a completely different framework. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, now you are part of the solution of making the world a better place. But often we operate in the context of thinking that we have so much that we need, that we are continually looking for others to meet our needs, not aware of the needs around us that we can meet. And in doing so, we actually enjoy life more. So you and I, we need to, push through the barriers and the hurdles for genuine community. It's not always a feel-good fest. We just got a little glimpse from one life group. But the path to deep and loving and transforming community, which is what all we want, takes persistence, takes intentionality. Now, the Super Bowl, you may have come a couple weeks ago, and it might have confused you a little bit. Right, All the lights and the bands and the creativity, and you may be thinking, well, if the church is about relationship, then why do we do all these things? What's, what's all about that? Well, we're simply trying to do in our culture what Jesus was doing in his. Like we discussed last week, I, I pointed out that this is for us like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he would use stories and parables, the cultural norm of that day, to help them understand the goodness of God and his will. Now, the cultural norms of our day are music and movies and creativity, but the message is the same message that Jesus delivered. Now, Jesus sent out the 70. That's like our networks. He mobilized these medium-sized groups to go and serve in the villages and towns to serve and heal and care and show and tell what God's kingdom is like. And we do that. We, We serve our kids on Sunday. We have greeters. We have a team that makes tacos. We serve our neighbors in Dripping Springs and Circle C. We have networks serving the homeless, a network pulling together business leaders. See, these are, for many of us, the first step into community where others start to know us and we start to know them. Or Jesus and his 12, that's like our life groups. Our life groups is where we find closer community, where we're intentional about spiritual growth. But Jesus also had three of his 12, Peter, James, and John, that were even closer to him. They were able to see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, to see his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're like what we call running partners. 
One to two people we choose to trust with our deepest struggles, our secrets, our highs, our lows. And we run the race of life supporting each other. This is too hard to do on our own. And I can tell this is not the group that's running the marathon today. And, and I am so glad that you're here with us. And you will not be nearly as sore as our friends that are. But there's something we can learn from those moments in our life when we train for something like a marathon. You know we can actually do more and achieve more when we have others supporting us along the way. And that's what a running partner could be. And you can find these running partners as part of our recovery group or as part of your life group or as part of your network as you serve together. And that's why every week we say, check out Starting Gate. It's the greatest way, quickest, simplest, easiest way to step into community. Starting Gate perhaps is your next step. It's the perfect time to do that. But let's be honest, so many of us stay on the sidelines because real community isn't so easy. And we're not honest, if we're not honest about what's difficult, then we'll never learn to get to the other side where we experience more heaven on earth. So let's talk about what we might experience when we come out of anonymity and move into community, and then what to do about it. So today is more about the bad news, you ready? First, People are hurtful and untrustworthy. You're like, I already knew that. Well, let's talk about this for a minute. See, all humans sin. We're all broken. We all seek to do our will. We all follow after our ways more than we do God's ways and God's wills. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that hurt people hurt people. And we're a part of a chain of generations of hurting each other, but we can be the ones that stop that pain cycle. If you truly follow God's spirit, he will actually lead you into community with people who are hurt. And guess what? They're gonna hurt you. And if we're honest, you're gonna hurt them as well. Now, what happens is we're often shocked when we hurt someone or offend someone because we didn't mean to do so. But see, the problem is only we know our motives. And often we assume the worst in others. See, Jesus, as he did life with these disciples for three and a half years, these chosen, beloved disciples, they would often hurt him, and yet he kept pressing forward. There was this time where a bunch of people were surrounding Jesus, and they were calling themselves followers of this rabbi, this teacher, and then he shared one particular message in John 6 that they did not like, and notice what happened. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So he looked at the 12 and says, you do not want to leave too, do you? I mean, can't you just hear the hurt in his voice? I mean, these disciples, those that were closest to him, you think maybe the greatest small group in history, and yet they kept betraying him and hurting him and arguing with each other. They let him down again and again. And at the time he needed them the most, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just on the verge of willingly giving his life over to the authorities that he might be crucified on our behalf. He says these words in Mark 14. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Jesus is urgent. Jesus is in a difficult moment of suffering, and all he's asking is just stay awake with me, just be with me, and guess what they did? 
they fell asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. They kept falling asleep. And then Jesus has a conversation with Peter and he warns him that you're going to be like the rest. You're gonna deny me. You're gonna abandon me. And he says, Peter, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the others, all of them said the same. Well, if you know the rest of the story, Peter denied him, not once, not twice, but three times that night. And then all the others disowned Jesus and ran in fear. In his moment, in the moment of his life where he needed his friends the most, he was abandoned. And in those moments, he was lied about. He was falsely convicted. He was mocked and tortured, nailed to a cross by the people he came to serve. And as they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you follow Jesus, that's the God we serve. He, he did not shirk from community, did not run away from community. He kept moving deeper into community, even though it cost him everything. Now, that seems twisted. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's not our first thought. We would pray, Father, smite them, for they do know what they're doing. This hurts. But God's ways are twisted compared to the ways of the world. And I need to be honest. There is no way that you and I can actually pull off ideal community without God's help. We need God's power in order to love and to forgive. Matthew 6 tells us, in Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray, he, he says we should pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Or Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In essence, the scriptures expect we are going to let each other down. We're gonna hurt each other at some point. But instead of running or retaliating, we're to follow the example of Jesus and we're to forgive, just as God forgives us. Now, this doesn't mean just brushing it under the rug, forgetting it ever happened. See, true community, true love comes through the healing of our hurts. And that's what we have to learn and grow and understand together. So we cooperate with God to be the solution rather than compounding the hurt and division by running and retaliating. There's a woman, part of our church named Sarah, who talks about how ever since childhood, she would go into life expecting rejection. She said this, and usually I got what I expected. Now I'm discovering a new way of life. Instead of constantly focusing on myself and my fears, I focus on Jesus. He is my hope for my deepest needs getting met, even through others. This allows me to see people who have hurt me as the hurting people they are. This helps me face my fears of moving closer to them, and as I lean into the acceptance of the Lord, I have something to offer to them. And now I'm amazed at the way God loves me through people I had previously expected to reject me. See, when we're hurt or we're offended, we need to lean into God's love and grace that keeps forgiving for all of our wrongs so that we can offer that same sort of grace and love and reconciliation to those around us. 
And when someone hurts us, we need to realize that there's probably something else going on that, that drove them to this. And when we are hurt, we need to be praying, God, what can I do to bring healing to them? Maybe you've heard this phrase by Scottish theologian Ian McLaren. Be kind, for everyone you meet is an idiot. Oh, wait, that's not exactly it. That's how I was raised. Sorry. Freudian slip. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Right? Rather than judging them assuming the worst in them, realize that there could be something going on that you cannot see. Stephen Covey, an author, tells a story of being on a subway and this man gets on and his three kids were just running amok. And he was thinking he should say something because this dad is just letting these kids disrupt everyone on the subway car. And just about as, as he was about to confront the father who was just sitting there, not even paying attention, the father caught his eyes and realized Stephen was looking at him. And so the father says to Stephen, I I'm sorry, my kids are so crazy right now. We just left the hospital where my, my wife died. And I don't know what I'm gonna do when I get home. Well, that completely changed his perspective. All of a sudden, he offered to help with those kids instead of judge the father. Sometimes we're too busy for empathy. We're too self-focused to notice. I learned this lesson years ago when I was a student pastor at a church in Seattle. Our first little youth group after we were married and, and there was this night that in youth group we were kind of wrapping things up and, and this girl named Christy was inviting a friend to her 16th birthday party and as I was kind of walking by, I overheard it, and she just kind of threw out, well, well, you can come too. And I just kind of, oh, thanks so much, and happy birthday, and I just kept going. And, and I kind of mentioned it to my wife a day or so later, and she's like, well, we gotta go. I was like, no, it wasn't really an invitation to us. She was just kind of offering it to me because I overheard the whole thing. She's like, no, no, we need to go. And I'm thinking, sweetheart, I just hung out with all these kids. <laughs> You're like, I don't wanna go. We're newlyweds, like why are we hanging out with teenagers all the time? Let's just not go. But she insisted. And so we go to the party, it's at a skating rink and we get there and there's a table set for 30 people. And we, before leaving, called a couple of the students in the youth group and so there were three kids and me and my wife and we get there and there's mom and dad and Christy and no one else. And so a few minutes go by, we're visiting and chatting and, and two other kids come in only to say, happy birthday, we can't stay, we're going to another party and lift. For the next two hours, we were the only five guests at Christie's 16th birthday party. And as they pulled us all together after skating, we, we sang happy birthday and we sang a little bit louder because there wasn't very many of us. And then they offered us cake and we ate a lot of cake to make it look like more people were there. And I remember after dropping off the three kids that we'd taken with us that I looked over at my wife and I said, thank you for insisting we go. If we had not gone, there would not have been one person at that party to sing to her other than her parents. A few days later, Julie, the mom, who had been antagonistic towards her daughter, even coming to youth group, had made fun of her and teased her for coming to this youth group comes to pick her up and she comes into our little youth room with tears in her eyes, 
describing her need to know God. And I shared with her how, how she can find forgiveness and new life, that God loves her, and, and that we're so glad that, that, that she's in that same place that her daughter has been. And, and prayed with her. She wipes the tears off her eyes. A big smile comes across her face. And then I, I just had to ask her. I said, Julie, what happened? You were so antagonistic, even making fun of your daughter, and now you want to follow Jesus too. And she looked at me like it was a stupid question. She said, the only people that care about my daughter are people who love Jesus. You guys were the only one at the party. Now, what I've discovered in my life, when you care enough to serve people, then you actually have the opportunity to influence them. But when you try to impose your thoughts on others that know you don't care for them, you're not gonna get anywhere. See, our world needs more empathy, needs more people like my wife who can hear the desperation and the sadness in the midst of a random invitation. When you find someone who's hurting, pray for them. When you find someone has hurt you, pray for them. When we follow Jesus and offer forgiveness and compassion to those who are hurting us and those who are hurting others, we become healers in our world. We become the answer to Jesus' last prayer. Listen to this in John 17. Holy Father, Jesus prayed, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. See, his prayer was that for those who would follow after him from in that moment and for the rest of time, that we would be known by our unity, by our love for each other. And he goes on to say that in loving others, it will prove to the world that he is God. So we shouldn't let evil win. When we get hurt, go and reconcile and forgive in God's power. So if you get too close to people, I'm gonna warn you, there's something else that happens. You'll discover this if you haven't already. People are also selfish and arrogant. Have you discovered that? Or at least they seem that way to some people. Now in my book, Not Like Me, I wrote about how Many times, conflict results from arrogance. We think or feel we deserve better treatment. Or we're convinced that we have it all together while others don't. Yet the scriptures declare that we are to walk humbly before God and with others. We are all interconnected, which reminds us of our need for each other. Listen to more from Jesus' prayer. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The greatest apologetic to the world is our love for each other. It's not through some great debate. It's through how we treat each other and how we treat the world around us. See, God's desire is that we see and consider one another that we unite to consider one another, not just ourselves. The truth is, most of us fight self-centeredness rather than being God-centered and other-centered. We are created to be dependent on one another, and none of us live truly independent of others. The Apostle Paul challenging the, the Roman followers of Jesus to think differently. He bathed his words in humility when he wrote this, Romans 12. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So you may be thinking, people are so self-centered and arrogant, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And in the process, we are actually putting ourselves above others. Now, as a, our campus pastors and executive pastors, we read a book. It's called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's a fascinating book. The, the writers are, are not Christians, as far as we can tell, but, but they share some truths that Jesus taught. And basically, they start with this premise. We're all self-deceived. Now, we all judge others based on what they say or do, but we want them to judge us by our motives. And we expect others to withhold judgment on us, on our words and actions, until they understand how pure our motives are, but we don't do that for others. Now, they give this example. This might resonate with some of you. Any of you have little ones, little kiddos? You're too tired to raise your hand? Okay. All right. So... Just take this example. It's from the, script, from the book, right? There's a, a couple sleeping and the baby starts crying. Has that ever happened to you? Now, both are laying there pretending to be asleep, <laughs> hoping that the other will get up. Sound familiar? Now, the father in this story, in the book, has this nudge in his conscience that he should get up and care for the baby so his wife can sleep. But even though he knows that would be the kind thing to do, he doesn't do it. Instead, he starts lying there, and in his mind, he starts justifying why she should do it. <laughs> now, while he's lying there, wait for the punchline. While he's lying there figuring out why she should do it, he's basically justifying his actions, he's betraying himself. He had the thought, I should go take care of the baby. But he betrayed his own conscience by not doing so. And he starts justifying himself for why he works harder than her. So the next thing you know, it's getting worse than that. Not only is he justifying his actions, he is now blaming her for her inaction. See, what's happening is he's starting to see her as not a person, but as an object in the way of what he wants, which is more sleep. <laughs> and as soon as we start blaming and accusing the other person in our head and then justifying our own case, no matter what it is, this is the clue. We are probably self-deceived. And guess what? So is she. See, one's self-deceived actions can provoke the other in acting the same way. This is human nature. We see this even with the disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom and Jesus has to stop them and remind them, you wanna be great in God's kingdom? Become a servant. It's as if they hadn't been listening for the last three and a half years. See, greatness in God's eyes are those who serve others and think of others, even to the point of self-sacrifice. Jesus laid down his very life for you. So when you move towards others in community, people will be self-deceived and they will do me first behavior and it will provoke you to start doing the same, especially in the middle of the night. But if we can become those who are more concerned with serving others and meeting the needs of others, trusting that God will meet our deepest needs, then we are no longer trapped in self-deception. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, 
you will be judged. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. See, God alone knows the motives of your heart, so don't worry about justifying yourself or blaming others. Instead, ask God to give you the power to do the right thing and to treat them the way you wanna be treated. The early church community saw glimpses of this. Instead of when scarcity hits, remember when we had the gas shortage? Everybody gets in line to get their own gas. Remember when we couldn't boil water? We all go and buy water. Some of us still have water left over from that water crisis, right? It's human nature. We hoard for ourselves. But what if instead we decided to share what we have? That's completely counter to the world. Listen to what happened in Acts 2. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. People were surprised. They had these strange beliefs, but they were incredibly generous and kind to each other. But there's another reason we don't get involved. There's another reason we don't dive into community. See, getting involved brings drama and conflict. How many of you love drama? All right? Drama just happens to us, right? We don't like drama, but here's what happens. If we avoid community because we don't like drama, then we're actually perpetuating the problem, remaining isolated and lonely and hurting and unhealed, seeing others as objects instead of stepping in and becoming agents of healing. See, we have to understand conflict is not bad. It's actually the path to true loving community. A loving community is both inclusive and willing to have the hard conversations. It's a place where you don't just live and let live, but you actually develop enough trust and love that you can share the truth. See, we, when we avoid conflict, we settle for pseudo-community. It's pretending to be close, but in reality, we're not willing to love each other enough to work through our real differences. And we see this throughout the scriptures. See, if you wanna be like the early church, the early church was filled with conflict. It was filled with all sorts of drama. They saw the miraculous and they could not stand each other from time to time. But it's a beautiful way Jesus tells us, look, when things go wrong, if another believer sins against you, Matthew 18, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you, won't have, you have won that person back. He doesn't say, blast them on Facebook publicly so everybody knows how they hurt you for obvious reasons. But he also says, it's important, go privately. Don't start telling other people, gossiping about that person. Go directly to that person. Don't rob that person of the opportunity to say they're sorry. Assume the best. See, something I learned long ago is my wife and I are about to celebrate 25 years of marriage. I learned a long time ago, it's more important to make things right than to be right. And I am right a lot, so this has been really, really hard. <laughs> but it's more important to make things right than to be right. Listen to this verse, Romans 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You can't change anyone. You can't make them forgive you. The scriptures just hold us to be accountable for doing whatever we can to live at peace with others. And one final challenge, we'll end with this. People are not like me. And that's not all right. As you dive into community, you're gonna discover there are people in your network, in your life group who voted differently than you. Okay, Jesus didn't say to love them, right? 
They, they might make different choices than you would. They might have different values than you do. But here's the thing. This is a community where you can come as you are. We're all in different places in the journey, and we're all trying to point each other towards the one who created us, the one who loves us. God's end game is this. Revelation 5, talking about Jesus. You were slain, and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. See, Jesus ultimately gave his life not only to reconcile us to God, that when we say, I need what you did on the cross to count for me, I need to be forgiven. That blood that was shed, that body that was broken, I needed that, that was for me. That he reconciles us to God and then sends us out as reconcilers to the world around us. And so what I want us to do in these next moments, we're gonna sing a song and it could be your next step is just to sing out, sing this out as a prayer. Or, or perhaps it's in this song, you wanna ask God, who is it that you need to reach out and love and serve? Maybe someone that you need to forgive. And we also have four communion stations. There's one right here in the back, one on this side, one over here in the front, another over here. If you are a follower of Jesus, I wanna invite you to examine your heart and perhaps your next step is just to take communion. The Lord's Supper, it's a reminder when you eat of that bread, when you drink of the juice of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It's not an obligation. If you're here and you're not yet following Jesus, just enjoy this moment. But if you do, I, I wanna invite you to examine your heart before taking these elements and remember that we are to forgive just as Christ forgave us. So let's stand together and let's respond whatever way God puts on your heart.